It's Tuesday, December 5th. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. We learn about what could be game changers for farmers, an eco-forest grant available now, but the deadline is looming. And $20 million for building climate resilience for Native Hawaiian groups, what indigenous knowledge can do. We continue to explore issues around parental kidnapping. A mother takes action in her son's name in hopes of sparing others her pain. A sobering and tragic story, but a necessary one to tell. And Children's Theater on Molokai, what a small program brings to a community in a big way. Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tis the season for giving, and farmers have a chance at a gift of a federal grant aimed at building food security in agroforestry. The Hawaii Ulu Cooperative and the Nature Conservancy are shepherding the program. We talked to program director Chris Kaikapu, but we start off with Donna Shapiro, general manager of the cooperative. We talked about how this could be a game changer for fledging and commercial farmers as we build more climate smart communities. You know, the impact that we're hoping for and envisioning is unlocking capital for farmers to expand not just ulu production, but agroforestry production broadly. So ulu is a core agroforestry crop in traditional Hawaiian agroforestry systems, but ulu doesn't grow great in all microclimates of Hawaii. For instance, in higher elevations, it's it's a lot less productive. So this particular project is really focused on agroforestry as a climate smart form of agriculture. It's not limited exclusively to ulu agroforestry. As the regional lead, Hawaii Ulu Co-op obviously loves ulu and we definitely think that ulu is a priority crop for the state because of food security, but the program as a whole is not going to only be limited to lower elevation farms that can grow ulu. So just wanted to make that really clear. Higher elevation farms or farms looking to practice agroforestry with other crops as their primary commodities are definitely welcome to apply. When we last talked, you were trying to get kind of a critical mass, right? So we could start developing, you know, flour, right, for products. Mm -hmm. You needed the volume. And what we're hearing, right, from all these businesses, like Zippy's wants to, you know, provide more ulu, but they just don't have enough product. We hear a lot of this. And so I was excited for the breadfruit farmers that this could be a big boost in our coverage across the state. Yeah, I think that it will be. You know, funding to start or expand ulu production in agroforestry systems has been pretty limited, especially because tree cropping systems take a long time to generate revenues. Ulu, as an example, takes at least five years until you can really expect commercial volumes coming off of your trees. And in some cases, it's even longer. So how is a farmer going to fund the establishment of their farm with five to 10 years until their farm is going to break even. And this source of funding is a grant. It's not a reimbursement grant. It's an incentive program. So it's actually upfront capital 
and you don't have to pay it back. It's going to be a really effective, a really impactful form of funding that hasn't been available before. And Chris, jump in here, you know, because you're going to be spearheading this, right? I mean, you're there on Kauai, but we're talking all the islands. Yeah, no, for sure. Every Farms on every island are eligible, landowners on every island. And, and yeah, like Donna said, I mean, it's an exciting opportunity to have an incentive program structure instead of reimbursement because farming costs are so high, especially in Hawaii, that it's, you know, those reimbursement programs just really aren't as applicable or um, they don't make sense for the average farmer in Hawaii. So having the ability to receive funds up front for what you're going to do, especially when it involves trees, is, is huge. So what other types of trees are we talking about besides ulu? I mean, we're talking mango, oranges. Pretty much any fruit tree or timber species can just be an ecosystem support crop, like a mulching tree, willy-willy, clericidia, other nitrogen fixers, and shrubs as well, understory or mid-canopy crops. All of those supply to agroforestry. The only ones that would be disqualified would be ones that are deemed invasive. So we're in the process of coming up with a blacklist of crops that are not allowed because of their invasiveness or potential to spread disease, that sort of thing. I am excited because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we could really help the avocado farmers. What was the other one? Sapote, I think that's another crop, I think, that was uh, getting some interest there, I think, on the Big Island. It's really a pretty amazing opportunity for farmers to get in on this. Yeah, exactly. It's a big opportunity for our Aina, I think, too, because agroforestry, that's one of the reasons that I'm such a big proponent of it and why I wanted to, I guess, make a career out of it is because it, it has the potential to be a solution for all of our lands that have been degraded from former sugarcane plantation operations. So a lot of our, you know, former sugarcane lands are optimal. They're like the Kula lands and they're optimal for agroforestry. It's what probably was there in a large majority of these areas that were, you know, bulldozed or cleared for sugarcane. And so when you think about the most responsible thing to do from an environmental perspective, you know, to grow or produce food in these areas, and so for me, that's one of the big, more important factors is to consider our INUN first and what we need to do to be sustainable here. And so agroforestry, I think, is a huge solution. And agroforestry, in simplest terms, it's, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with this, this new word, it's like diverse orchards, you know, it's fruit trees and mid-canopy and ground cover crops all intermixed. Well, talk about the types of uh, shrub crops that would be available or eligible for this grant? I mean, the most common or obvious example would be like mamaki, which is a native um, plant that's used for tea and medicinal purposes and is really becoming popular as a product. There's also like ava, which is a popular native crop, and other small trees, small shrubs, understory, you know, like hollow or boko um, olao, some other medicinal herbs, but pretty much anything that can grow between rows of trees. So like palaai is really popular, squash. You can even do vegetables, traditional row crops. And so are we talking everything from like cacao to coffee as well? Mm-hmm. Well, Donna, I know when uh, we were chatting about Ulu, I know that uh, the community, I think of like Haula and Laie over here on Oahu, they were looking at trying to make their communities more resilient. They were urging the community members, families to plant Ulu in your backyard because if the you know roads are closed, you at least still have Ulu in your home on your property 
to harvest. How are we looking at this, you know, I guess methodically when you figure out food security and in what are those areas that are food deserts? Well, I guess an important distinction here is subsistence versus commercial production. This particular program, it's called the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities. And that word commodity is really important. This program is about commercial production. So it's actually not providing funding for subsistence operations or, you know, projects that are purely for community food security in backyards or in community gardens or parks. This is really targeting farmers, part-time commercial or full-time commercial farmers, or beginning farmers or aspiring farmers that would like to be more commercial. So that's a really important point. If you're just a backyard grower wanting to grow more of your own local food, that's fantastic. But this is not the right program for you. But there are other funding pots to tap from as well, I think, for those backyard gardeners and farmers. You know, the one that's coming to mind right now is the Hawaii Department of Ag microgrant program. That's up to $5,000, and it's exactly the flip of this program. It's specifically for household food security and community food security. So for folks that are looking to do more subsistence food security projects, that would be a great one to look at. And I believe nonprofit community organizations can get $10,000 from that program. Okay, so what do then our commercial growers need to know? How do they apply? Because you know, the deadline is the end of this month. That's right. The deadline for this enrollment period is December 31st. There will be future enrollment periods. This is a five-year grant, and there's three enrollment periods per year. So we're really encouraging people not to apply until they feel that they're ready and until they have a plan that is going to be really solid because that way they'll have a more competitive application. They can find out, people can find more information and the application form on our website, ulu.coop slash EAP. EAP stands for Expanding Agroforestry Projects, EAP. That's the acronym for this program. And if they have any questions, they can contact Chris. His email is agroforestry at eatbreadfruit.com. Chris can also help, you know, help give feedback on proposal ideas. And if you do apply and you're not selected in this very first enrollment period, we really encourage you to apply again and we will provide feedback to help you strengthen your application. I also wanted to make sure that the types of agroforestry practices covered under this program are really clear to potential applicants. So agroforestry is a relatively new term for an ancient practice, a practice that's been implemented all over the world, including in Hawaii for millennia. And as Chris mentioned, there's so many awesome sustainability benefits and ecosystem services that agroforestry provides beyond producing abundant amounts of food or timber or other crops. But under the USDA's current definition of agroforestry, there are five recognized practices, and only three of those practices are eligible under this particular program. The three practices that are eligible are alley cropping, silvopasture, and windbreaks. And I could provide a quick overview of what each practice entails. Would that be helpful? Yes, because I think maybe our listeners won't understand that. What does alley cropping mean? So alley cropping is the idea of planting your trees in rows like you might in a conventional orchard setting, but then having diversification in the alleys. So the alleys are those spaces in between traditional rows of trees. The alley crop can be another tree. 
It can be a shrub, like Chris described, mamaki or ava, which is lower than ulu. It can be coffee or cacao, which love to grow in the shade of canopy trees. Or it can be a ground crop like pumpkin or kalo or sweet potato. So that's an alley cropping system. It's basically the combination of trees in rows with other trees or shrubs or ground crops in the alleys. What about silvopasture? So silvopasture is the combination of trees with animals, with livestock. A popular form of silvopasture here in Hawaii is with cattle. So one of our member farms on Maui, Hana Ranch, actually practices silvopasture already with ulu and cattle on their land. They have very wide-spaced ulu trees of 10 to 15 trees per acre, and their cattle graze throughout the pasture. And they eat the leaves of the tree, they eat the fruit that falls, they rest in the shade of the trees, and it's a really great combination. It seems to increase ulu production and it supports the, the cow's health. So that silvo pasture, it can also be practiced with sheep, with chickens even. So it's pretty diverse what you can do with silvo pasture. And then the last one, windbreaks, is really what it sounds like. It's utilizing trees as a barrier to protect your crop or livestock from wind, from wind damage. So it would be like a row of trees, you know, around a callow field or, you know, a perimeter of trees all around a paddock that's home to sheep, for example. And then, Chris, how do we roll this out statewide, right? Because, you know, we often hear, well, we don't really have a baseline on, you know, all the the products and the crops that we're growing. We don't have good numbers to work from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you figure out, you know, what our greatest need is? Well, we are prioritizing trying to find projects on each island. We currently have most of the projects or most of the interest is coming from Hawaii Island. We do have some on Oahu, some on Kauai, and a few on Maui, but none yet from Lanai or Molokai. So that is, it is a priority, at least of mine, is to make sure we have projects going on each island. And then explicitly in, in the nationwide program goals is to set up a network of demonstration sites and research partners. So looking for projects that are willing to become demonstration sites for everyone to learn from, to come and visit, to, to host visits occasionally for groups to learn and to you know help, I guess, catalyze this agroforestry industry by knowledge sharing. That was Chris Kaikapu and Donna Shapiro with the Ulu Cooperative talking about a new grant program for commercial farmers. Look for links to apply on the conversation page of whitepublicradio.org later today. The deadline to apply is the end of the month. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today on The Daily, as a racketeering trial begins in Atlanta, much of the focus is on the high-profile defendant, the best-selling rapper Young Thug. But in a very real sense, hip-hop itself is on trial. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30.
Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, with info sessions for the 2024 Distance Learning Executive MBA and Master of HR Management, scheidler.hawaii.edu slash executive. news of another federal pot of money. This one challenges Native Hawaiian groups to get innovative and use indigenous knowledge to combat climate change and figure out how to adapt our cultural practices for the future. Stanton Enomoto is the program director with the U.S. Interior Department's Office of Native Hawaiian Relations. So the funding that came to the Office of Native Hawaiian Relations was appropriated by Congress uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So our congressional delegation, especially Senator Schatz, was very instrumental in securing these funds. And, you know, with the support of the president, came over to Interior and to our office. And we're, as you described, really looking at trying to advance Native Hawaiian climate resilience. Um, it's happening. It's going to continue to happen. And here we now have a dedicated um, portion of money to support resilience and adaptation activities specifically for our community. So talk about the types of programs we might see funded with this? Sure. So, you know, overall, our, our goal of the program is really to sustain this idea of Native Hawaiian resilience in the face of climate change. So when we think about climate change, it affects uh, so many different things from sea level rise affecting our fish ponds or extreme weather events flooding our taro fields or temperature rise affecting our highland forests and, and contributing to avian malaria that's you know wiping out our, our native forest birds. All of these things um, contribute to our sense of identity as Native Hawaiians and what it means, you know, who we are, right? And so here we have an opportunity to provide funding to Native Hawaiian organizations that are in these spaces to not only recover, perhaps, from past uh, extreme events or floods or what have you, but to, more importantly, I think, to look forward and prepare for future climate impacts. So, again, whether it is sea level rise, extreme storm events affecting um, shoreline areas, exposing uh, Native Hawaiian burials and, and the like, or even getting into spaces that are transformative in, in some ways, going beyond you know, the existing systems, our existing way of thinking about things and being innovative. And that's one of the exciting things that I think is, is unique about this program, that we are creating this space for innovation, for Native Hawaiian indigenous knowledge to get into sort of this indigenous way of thinking, applying our traditional knowledge in ways that can really advance us and bring about this idea of resiliency. Well, you know, I'm just thinking of projects like, you know, they're on Molokai, right? Walter Ritty and the fish ponds, the fish ponds here at Heia, you know, those 
kinds of things that could really benefit, uh, you know, I, everything from, you know, the, the, the Limu projects also out at Waimanalo and, and on the other islands, too. Absolutely. Those certainly all fall within the realm of this program because they're all going to be impacted in some way uh, by climate change. Even shoreline or nearshore areas where our sea surface, our ocean temperatures are increasing, causing coral bleaching. And when, as you know, when we lose our coral reefs, we lose our fish, we lose our, you know, our, our ice box, if you will, of how we sustain ourselves. So these are all things that you know, our community is certainly aware of, but, you know, with some additional funding, it gives us this opportunity now to reach further into these spaces and think about, well, how are we going to adapt as coral bleaches or as sea level rise or, you know, our uh, salt pans on Kauai, uh, you know, as they're being impacted, what do we need to do? What are some strategies we need to employ to preserve these cultural practices and again our sense of identity into the future and for future generations. We just did a series on the seed banks throughout the state and the one thing that pops into mind you know is Lahaina and you know they're talking about what do we replace all that burnt area with you know and they said we don't have enough native seeds of our native grasses and they might have to plant the you know the non-natives the aggressive stuff and you know you're, you're just kind of like ouch I wish we had those native seeds now exactly uh, it, it really is a tough situation thinking about what happened in Lahaina and I know all of us many of us are, are, are deeply affected by that and I think there's going to be this space for reflection and strategizing and thinking about how do we recover out of this in the most meaningful way. And to your point about uh, native seeds, you know, many of them, many native plants aren't as, you know, uh, they don't burn as hotly as some of these invasive species. So that's another strategy of replanting with natives where, you know, in the event of another fire, it it won't perhaps burn as hot or, you know, as intensely. Right. We have to reduce our risk. Exactly. And maybe there's other strategies of um, restoring the wetlands that were once down in Lahaina, whether you have Mokuhinia and Mokuula and some of these other places that are tremendously culturally significant, not only for cultural reasons, but, you know, environmental reasons as well. It was a wetland <laughs> to, you know, help prevent wildfires from happening in that area. And so I think this, as tragic as Lahaina was and is, there's a space here, I think, through this program, perhaps, you know, in some ways we can help community think through cultural approaches, traditional approaches, application of our knowledge and stories in ways that can help sustain and recover that area in a meaningful manner. And so how do we get the word out? You know, how is this program going to be structured? Sure. Where do people apply? Sure. I think the easiest thing for folks who are interested in applying for grant funding um, is to go to our Office of Native Hawaiian Relations website. Simple URL, www.doi.com. 
dot gov slash hawaiian so that's our main landing page once you get there you'll see the link to our kapapa huliao uh climate resilience program and all of the information is there. I should note with respect to this program, eligibility is limited to Native Hawaiian organizations only. And there's a definition and criteria on our website uh, that organizations can look at. We designed the program this way to really focus in on our community and try to build capacity amongst our Native Hawaiian organizations around this really important topic of climate resilience. And are there caps on the money that's available? Are they loans? Are they grants? Sure. The program is uh, basically a granting program. We have a uh, funding ranges from $100,000 all the way up to $5 million. Um, we have several categories of funding with funding levels attached to them. Um, when we went out for scoping meetings earlier this summer uh, to engage community, hear their concerns, their interests, some of the feedback that we got is that uh, you know, we have Native Hawaiian organizations with capacity ranges, you know, from the, the big organizations that always get the money down to the small community organizations out in rural areas that just don't have the time or ability to compete on large federal grants, but they still have a need. So how do we accommodate those interests? And so we designed this program in such a way that we can accommodate the small community organizations in, you know, Ka'u to, you know, Ha'ena or wherever, um, all the way up to the bigger organization, Native Hawaiian organizations that serve us statewide. So we really try to, yeah, capture the gamut of that, as well as divide the program up in a way that it achieves our climate resilience goals around responding or coping to past activities, adapting or looking ahead to future impacts and even being transformative. The other aspect of our program is, you know, really trying to recognize the, that climate change is long-term. It's going to affect multiple generations. So how do we think about engaging youth, creating these multi-generation or multi-generational or multi-sectorial aspects, and then being in a space of sharing that knowledge? Oftentimes we see with grant programs, the grantee gets the funding and that's it. Um, we're trying to create a space with this program where grantees will come together annually and be able to share knowledge, learn from each other, learn lessons from each other, what works, what doesn't, um, and apply that. I mean, I think that all contributes towards a, a sense of resilience for our community. And that was Stanton Inamono talking about a $20 million grant through the U.S. Interior Department that Native Hawaiian groups are eligible to apply for to help us become more climate resilient. Look for links on how to apply on our website later today.
Support for HPR comes from Hawaiian Airlines, introducing the new Boeing 787, featuring custom-designed Lehoku suites to its fleet starting April 2024. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. This holiday season, may we take the time to pause, reflect, and give thanks. If HPR is a public service you're thankful for, we invite you to support your future listening with a monthly financial gift. With our community pitching in, $10 a month makes a difference you can hear. Give today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way and the 2023 Holiday Wish List, connecting businesses and individuals to the needs of participating United Way agencies across the state. More at auw.org. Civil Beat has a story about a rogue road out in East Honolulu, but it could very well be in a neighborhood near you. That's our reality check today. Editor Kim Gamble joins us. Hi, Kim. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. So this story uh, by Ben Angarone, I mean, it's really something that we hear from time to time. Uh, You know, somebody calls to complain to the city, oh, this needs fixing, and then they find out, ah, your neighbors own the road. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It, it is a common occurrence. You'll remember um, a couple years ago, there was a fight over a road near Diamond Head, Leahi Avenue. Yes. And a woman had actually bought the road, and her neighbors weren't happy with how she handled it. And that road ended up getting transferred back to the city. So this case is not quite so high profile. Um, it involves, you know, sort of a sleepy neighborhood in Hawaii, Kai. Um, in Hawaii Kai, it's the road is Miloiki Place and Miloiki Road, um, and basically this has been going on for about twelve years. The you know main guy leading the effort there, David Gearlock, has been trying to get the city to accept responsibility for the roads, and because they're falling into disrepair, but he keeps running into stumbling blocks, and this story focuses on the latest stumbling block. And he's been trying for twelve years. <laughs> yeah, you know, Ben Ben Ingerone, who wrote the story, um, he went down there and talked to him. And David Gearlock talked about how, you know, they've, they've worked to basically, in order to transfer the road to the city, you have to make it compliant for the city. And so they had to put in streetlights and um, also make sure that light poles and trees were brought up to city standards along the roads. And he assumed that was that was enough. But then he found out that actually the developers who paved the roads have long since been disbanded. And they left about $38,000 in delinquent property taxes. So now the neighborhood finds itself um, responsible for those. I know. I mean, it, that's just one of those crazy things. You're just going, how could this happen? Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, it is complicated because um, basically each household would have to pay $425 um, in order to cover 
these property taxes. Um, a neighboring HOA has agreed to help with that responsibility. But to um, to get it done, they need each neighbor to chip in. And of course, some of the neighbors don't want to do that. They didn't realize they were responsible for a road. And it, it's tough, too, because, you know, you just think, well, it's this amount. But you know what? If we don't do anything, it, it could get worse. That's right. Then they're they're liable for, you know, more and more repairs that need to be done. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very interesting case. Yeah, well, I'm familiar with that neighborhood, Camilo Iki, so yeah, uh, you, you, you feel their pain. Uh, but there are other, like you said, other streets uh, where you've had issues like this crop up. Yeah, that's right. In fact, um, Ben talked to um, Managing Director of the City, Mike Formby, and um, Mike Formby um, filled him in that basically also in... Um, that also in Maili, mm-hmm. um, that the city has faced a problem because the residents suddenly had to fix a street light, and that sort of brought the realization that they were um, also responsible for this. And so the city has been working with them to try to find um, a compromise, but it's hard because one of the requirements is that the sidewalks have to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah, and all, I'm sure these neighbors are just thinking, ka-ching, ka-ching, it just keeps going up. Well, exactly. So I think they're worried about that. And the other interesting question is, you know, um, it's been it's been more than 20 years that this has been going on, and the city never actually went after these property taxes yet. Um, ben talked to, um, you know, Ben talked to city officials, and um, basically, they said that it's a very unusual situation, and nobody's really sure how this hasn't, you know, been brought up before. Um, generally, what would happen is the city would foreclose on the property if the property owners didn't pay their taxes, mm. and that hasn't happened in this case. Yeah. Um, now, um, as I said, Ben talked to Department of Budget and Fiscal Services Director Andrew Kawano. And um, he said they're looking into it. Okay. And Mike Farnby suggested that they might be willing to take over this road if the taxes are paid, but they won't take over the whole road because there's an issue with the drainage. All right. Pipes. Well, so. it's just, yeah, sounds very complicated, but we wish that there'll be some resolution soon. But thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Bye-bye. Uh, that was Kim Gamble with today's Reality Check. You can read Ben Angrone's story online at civilbeat.org. shared a story yesterday about a mom who created the Missing Children's Center in Hawaii after the heart-wrenching kidnapping of her three children back in the 1990s by her husband. Today we share the story of another mom with ties to Hawaii, Leslie Hugh. She created a nonprofit in honor of her nine-year-old son, Pierce. He was killed by her ex-husband in a murder-suicide during a child custody dispute over the COVID vaccine. Pierce used to come to Hawaii because of his grandparents who have a business in the islands. His favorite haunts on Oahu were Allen Davis Beach in East Hawaii, East Honolulu, and Alamwana Shopping Center. I came across their story thanks to Eric Pape, a former journalist with Honolulu Civil Beat, who penned an article for the Atavist magazine, an online platform for long-form narratives. We talked to the two of them this morning. Eric starts us off with how Leslie and Pierce's story touched his heart. It grabbed me in a big way because 
there was the big fight over vaccines was very ripe at that moment during the pandemic. And the idea that there was a father who became so obsessed with that that he was willing to commit a horrific, unfathomable crime was clear to me. But this was a story that said so many things so powerfully, and it was so shocking. And on a personal level, Pierce and, and my younger son were born at about the same time. And so when I went up to meet Leslie for the first time, the last thing I did before I went up was we had a, a birthday party for my son. And then I went up there, uh, you know, at the age of nine, you know, all of the fragility and innocence and, and, and every, everything that's baked into that. And, and the sense of, of mortality was, was very palpable to me, even though my son was just being my vibrant son. And so when I went up there, I, I think I would have been very sensitized anyway. It's just it was sort of a, an extra flashing sign as I was meeting Leslie, her attorney, Laurie Nackless, meeting and talking with an array of other people. It was so clear to me the emotional power and the pain that this man caused. But the only story I've ever done where every person that I interviewed at some point was in tears. Mm -hmm. Every person that I spoke to, people who are not usually in, in emotional roles at all, they were all working through the story of what had happened, trying to almost game it, come to another ending. An element of not not exactly survivor's guilt, but how could they get Pierce to survive? I, I've never had that. I've written about a lot of trauma. I've written about a lot of people going through different things. But to have every person wrestling with that on this really deep, powerful level, it, it was powerful to me, and I thought it would be powerful to other people. And the deeper point, I think, is getting to a point where we, we can't change the past, but all the different people can try to do something to prevent it is the only thing that I think that everyone can do in terms of sort of honoring Pierce in that way. And Leslie, you created um, Pierce's Pledge. Explain to our listeners what that does. Yeah, so um, Pierce's Pledge was created as a gift to Pierce for his 11th birthday the year before. And a friend of mine who's a family law attorney, and she happens you know, she's a friend and a, a family law attorney. She has a daughter who's the same age as Pierce, and we would travel together as, as moms. So when this happened, she came to me and she said that because of what happened to Pierce, she now asks every one of her clients whether they have guns in their house. And if they do, she, requ she, she requested and required them to store their weapons outside of their house. And, and at the time, she just took it into her own law firm safe and took the guns in and, and she said she didn't have any problem with anybody um, refusing to to give her the, the, the weapons. So I thought on that for a little bit and I thought it was such a powerful action that, that my friend did and, and it was so beautiful and, and meaningful and, and when she did it, I thought about it and one day I, I just thought, you know what, let's ask every family attorney to do the same thing in hopes to protect the vulnerable kids in custody because, you know, uh, it is a contentious time and you don't know how people are going to react. And I do think that that's probably the one thing that we could have done to protect Pierce a little bit or given him a chance to at least scream or something like that. So um, so I started Pierce's Pledge. And what we're doing is we're, we're asking every family attorney to be aware of, of firearms, to ask the question with their clients whether there are firearms in the house and if they have them to store them off property. And because storage is such a hard problem in, in the USA, we've also taken on a campaign to go through and call every single gun store, every single uh, federal firearm licensee that can sell or buy or store guns 
to see whether or not they can store it on behalf of other people, people in need, people who are suicidal, people who are in a custody battle. Maybe their kids are in their house and they're not sure about their emotional state. Just there are times when you need to be separated from, from your, your gun. And so we've we've called through all 55,000 of these federal license holder ones, and uh, we found out only 4% store guns, and so we've put that on our map. So now we have a map of these licensees that can store guns for people. And so Pierce's Pledge is um, committed to going to every family law attorney conference and talking to every single lawyer to tell them that they're a part of this and they have a job and can help us and to protect our kids by, by asking these really tough questions. And I, I'm hoping that a side part of it is that when they're asking these questions about firearms, they can get a better insight into what's going on in the court case and an insight into, you know, whether there is domestic violence or if there is coercive control or, or some kind of something bigger going on in the, in the custody case. And when we talked last night, you know, I learned from you that we have a number of businesses here who are licensed to store guns for people. And you, you know, call these places up. Yep. We called. There's 95 federal firearm licensees in Hawaii, in the state of Hawaii. You know, you have many, many islands, but in the state of Hawaii. And there are five. There are five businesses in the state of Hawaii who will store, who will store your weapon for you, which means that you go there and say, you know, I need this out of my house and they will take it. It's a fee. They, they charge a monthly fee and every every company is different, but it's available. And, and when there's times that you need separation from your gun, short term, long term, you don't have to get rid of your ownership. You can just store it when you need it. And, you know, I mean, that's something that, you know, wasn't on my radar, but, you know, after, you know, learning your story and and the tragedy of, you know, what happened with your son and your husband, I'm just uh, amazed that you, you know, were able to create this uh, nonprofit and try and get the word out that we can do more to protect our children. Yeah, I, I do believe that, you know, this is, unfortunately, my job is to build Pierce's legacy. It was supposed to be my legacy, but now I have that job. And if I can save one child in honor of Pierce, then I think everything we're doing is worth it. And, you know, it's one child every six days that gets murdered by a parent during a custody or separation or divorce. Those numbers are staggering. And that's in the U.S. And the majority of them are with guns. And so if we can be a little bit safer... I think that it would, I mean, it could do something. It can really make a difference. I think of it as a seatbelt law. To be honest, the seatbelts were invented in the 1900s, but they weren't law until the 70s. But it wasn't until the Race Car Club of America took a stand in the 50s. And they required, they saw that many drivers were getting killed during races. And so they took a stand. They said, anybody who races during our race club must wear a seatbelt. And so that stand that they took you know, influenced how we all now wear seatbelts and get in the car and instantly put on our seatbelts. And so this is what we're asking of family law attorneys to take a stand to say, you know, we, we want you to ask about firearms if you can to require your clients to store them or to ask them or, or at least insist, you know, that they store their weapons just in case, right? Just in case something happens that we're a little bit safer. And so that is how, um, how I think 
you know, that could save a kid or save a, a, a parent. Or um, and, and like I told you, you know, it's not just Pierce that was affected in me. Like, my life is um, incredibly destroyed, but it's also the kids in Pierce's class, the entire school. I mean, Pierce's classmates, they have a really hard time. I've heard a lot about it a lot of nightmares you know they ask their parents their dad dad can you kill me mm. would you kill me you know these are questions that nine-year-olds shouldn't be be asking you know but they they, they are this is the reality now when something like this happens well you know i think because of your ties both of you you know to hawaii eric you were here for for several years as a journalist and and leslie you know your your parents have a business here as well and so i know you have memories uh, of your son here in hawaii uh, and many good times and and uh, we just want to send aloha your way i mean pierce's favorite place is hawaii it was our safe place you know we would go to um, feel, you know, I was divorced for many years and my ex-husband was a real terrible, hard person to deal with. And when we got to Hawaii, we felt safe, you know, mm-hmm. and it's a real special place for us. Pierce and I would hang out there alone and we'd feel really, really safe. So thank you for the aloha. All right. And thank you so much, Eric, for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having us, Catherine. Uh, that was journalist Eric Pape and Bay Area resident uh, Leslie Hugh, who we talked to this morning. Leslie's nine-year-old son, Pierce, was killed by her ex-husband. We'll have links to Pape's story on The Atavist, as well as links to the map created by Pierce's Pledge, the nonprofit created by Hugh to honor her son's memory and to help protect families from gun violence. time on the world, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has stalled, Russia remains dug in, and a sizable territory of Ukraine remains under occupation. If Ukraine remains a so-called gray zone, Russia will have control over European security for the long term. What Ukraine has achieved and what it still faces, that's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. The regional theater industry in this economy has been a bit challenged of late, but it's trying. The research and development that other businesses have, we are the research and development. I'm Kai Rizdal, a matinee of sorts at the Pasadena Playhouse. We will have that story for you, the numbers from Wall Street, and all the rest of the day's business news next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. children on our mind. We turn to Molokai. HBR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel joins us this morning. She's here to talk about the new Hokulani Children's Theater on the Friendly Isle. It is giving children the opportunity to experience the spotlight and stage for the first time. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so, so tell us about this. Yeah, so the Hokulani Children's Theater of Molokai started uh, earlier this year in January it was founded as a nonprofit theater program, and it's one of Molokai's only performing arts opportunities. And 
also the first and only dedicated theater program on island. So it's a really big opportunity for Keiki to get on the stage. And they've put on two plays so far this year. They're currently working on their third that will be showing this weekend on the island. It's Christmas Peter Pan. Hmm. And the play has 31 participants from ages 4 to 16. So it's it's quite a wide variety from many different types of backgrounds, um, kids in foster care, kids with special needs, um, Hawaiian immersion students, um, kids who are homeschooled, really diverse group. They're just a fantastic group of kids. The Children's Theater was founded and is directed by Vicki Boswell. She's a Moloka'i resident who has a background herself in theater. She says what kids are learning on this journey is way more important than the performance itself. These kids have coping skills that just needs a place for them to use what life has taught them to excel. And drama is a great, safe place to process new information and not be under attack personally. It's a safe place to try new things. I'm only concerned, are you growing? If you're growing, that's good enough. If you're better at you today than you were yesterday, we're progressing. That's all I care about. That is the true magic. It's the community building that's going on. It's the investing in our kids and and giving them a place to feel good about themselves. That's what I'm proud about. It's it's not the performance. The performance is over in a day or two, you know, but it's all the groundwork. Now, I'm not saying this is going to look gorgeous, but I'm saying that there has been more growth that the eye cannot see when they look at the performance. For kids to learn self-control and the power that they have, that is way more important than the performance. I love how she says that, you know, it creates a safe space for them. It does. And she worked for decades as a social worker, as a school crisis counselor. She has a background in making kids feel safe and making them feel passionate and special and really bringing a warmth to the program. Her personal background is with theater. Um, She herself uh, grew up as a special education student, and she said her mother put her in the school drama program to help with her diction. And she said the drama uh, and theater program that she participated in as a kid is really what kept her in school. She minored in theater in college. Um, She describes herself as as not super talented in theater, but extremely passionate about it. And she really transmits that passion to her students. Eighth grade Molokai student uh, Kavena Joao plays Captain Hook in this weekend's Christmas Peter Pan. She told me about the confidence that she's gained through the program and how stepping into her character makes her feel. When you go to theater, like in this kind of theater, you, you feel like you're loved. Like they're another family of yours. It builds up confidence for me. Like when I wasn't doing theater, like I was, I was very, very not good at speaking to people. Nah, I'm just, I'm a little better. Being in the character, you know, being like a part of the character makes you, makes you feel, makes you feel powerful, you know? Oh, I love that. Yeah, and, and it's great because they get to try on the characters, right? Try on the clothes and, and kind of, like, we get to, I guess, practice to see how things feel. Yes, and, and the, talking to the kids, you know, so many of them told me, as well as uh, Vicki Boswell, that 
stepping out of your own personal life and into the life of your character can feel very empowering. And, you know, learning the lines, gaining that that confidence on stage and, and being somebody else is is a very, you know, really powerful experience for kids, especially those who come from challenging circumstances. And again, you know, creating that safe place on the stage, in the theater. So many of the kids told me that they have made so many good friends. And as Kavena said, you know, friends that have turned into family for her. Um, she was one of the students who started with the program. Their first play earlier this year was The Legend of Mulan, which is a very empowering story in itself. And um, some of the kids have, you know, been with the program since the beginning. Some of this is their first play. But there's also a lot exciting uh, for them to look into in the future. Um, Boswell said that launching in February, she's going to start a Kiki and Kapuna comedy program, uh-huh. sort of switching gears. And they're also going to be partnering with the Lanai Academy of Performing Arts to do a camp and exchange program. So lots of lots of good things in the future for them as well. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Catherine. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel. Her stories cover Maui County. You can read them on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow we kick off our end of the year membership campaign. Are you a casual listener? Why don't you join us? Become a sustaining member. Share your comments or questions about what you heard on our show by calling our Talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation on our website or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. (music) 